Chapter six of the loss of the SS Titanic by Lawrence Beasley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Alison Hester. Chapter six The Sinking of the Titanic Seen from Her Deck. The two preceding chapters have been to a large extent the narrative of a single eyewitness and an account of the escape of one boat only from the Titanic's side. It will be well now to return to the Titanic and reconstruct a more general and complete account from the experiences of many people in different parts of the ship. A considerable part of these experiences was related to the writer firsthand by survivors, both on board the Carpathia and at other times, but some are derived from other sources which are probably as accurate as firsthand information. Other reports, which seemed at first sight to have been founded on the testimony of eyewitnesses, have been found on examination to have passed through several hands and have therefore been rejected. The testimony even of eyewitnesses has in some cases been excluded when it seemed not to agree with direct evidence of a number of other witnesses or with what reasoned judgment considered probable in the circumstances. In this category are the reports of explosions before the Titanic sank, the breaking of the ship in two parts, the suicide of officers. It would be well to notice here that the Titanic was in her correct course, the southerly one, and in the position which prudence dictates as a safe one under the ordinary conditions at that time of the year. To be strictly accurate, she was 16 miles south of the regular summer route which all companies follow from January to August. Perhaps the real history of the disaster should commence with the afternoon of Sunday, when marconograms were received by the Titanic from the ships ahead of her, warning her of the existence of icebergs. In connection with this must be taken the marked fall of temperature observed by everyone in the afternoon and evening of this day, as well as the very low temperature of the water. These have generally been taken to indicate that without any possibility of doubt, we were near an iceberg region, and the severest condemnation has been poured on the heads of the officers and captain for not having regard to these climatic conditions. But here caution is necessary. There can be little doubt now that the low temperature observed can be traced to the icebergs and ice field subsequently encountered, but experienced sailors are aware that it might have been observed without any icebergs being near. The cold Labrador current sweeps down by Newfoundland across the track of Atlantic liners, but does not necessarily carry icebergs with it. Cold winds blow from Greenland to Labrador, and not always from icebergs and ice fields, so that falls in temperature of sea and air are not prima facie evidence of the close proximity of icebergs. On the other hand, a single iceberg separated by many miles from its fellows might sink a ship, but certainly would not cause a drop in temperature either of the air or water. Then, as the Labrador current meets the warm Gulf Stream flowing from the Gulf of Mexico across to Europe, they do not necessarily intermingle, nor do they always run side by side or one on top of the other, but often interlaced, like the fingers of two hands. 
as a ship sails across this region the thermometer will record within a few miles temperatures of 34 degrees 58 degrees 35 degrees 59 degrees and so on it is little wonder then that sailors become accustomed to place little reliance on temperature conditions as a means of estimating the probabilities of encountering ice in their track an experienced sailor has told me that nothing is more difficult to diagnose than the presence of icebergs and a strong confirmation of this is found in the official sailing directions issued by the hydrographic department of the british admiralty no reliance can be placed on any warning being conveyed to the mariner by a fall in temperature either of sea or air of approaching ice some decrease in temperature has occasionally been recorded but more often none has been observed but notification by marconogram of the exact location of icebergs is a vastly different matter i remember with deep feeling the effect this information had on us when it first became generally known on board the carpathia rumors of it went round on wednesday morning grew to definite statements in the afternoon and were confirmed when one of the titanic officers admitted the truth of it in reply to a direct question i shall never forget the overwhelming sense of hopelessness that came over some of us as we obtained definite knowledge of the warning messages it was not then the unavoidable accident that we had hitherto supposed the sudden plunging into a region crowded with icebergs which no seaman however skilled a navigator he might be could have avoided the beautiful titanic wounded too deeply to recover the cries of the drowning still ringing in our ears and the thousands of homes that mourned all these calamities none of these things need ever have been it is no exaggeration to say that men who went through all the experiences of the collision and the rescue and the subsequent scenes on the quay at new york with hardly a tremor were quite overcome by this knowledge and turned away unable to speak i for one did so and i know others who told me they were similarly affected i think we all came to modify our opinions on this matter however when we learned more of the general conditions attending transatlantic steamship services the discussion as to who was responsible for these warnings being disregarded had perhaps better be postponed to a later chapter one of these warnings was handed to mr ismay by captain smith at five o'clock p m and returned at the latter's request at seven p m that it might be posted for the information of officers as a result of the messages they were instructed to keep a special lookout for ice this second officer lightoller did until he was relieved at ten p m by first officer murdoch to whom he handed on the instructions during mr lightoller's watch about nine p m the captain had joined him on the bridge and discussed the time we should be getting up towards the vicinity of ice and how we should recognize it if we should see it and refreshing our minds on the indications that ice gives when it is in the vicinity apparently too the officers had discussed among themselves the proximity of ice and mr lightoller had remarked that they would be approaching the position where ice had been reported during his watch the lookouts were cautioned similarly 
but no ice was sighted until a few minutes before the collision when the lookout man saw the iceberg and rang the bell three times the usual signal from the crow's nest when anything is seen dead ahead by telephone he reported to the bridge the presence of an iceberg but mr murdoch had already ordered quartermaster hitchens at the wheel to starboard the helm and the vessel began to swing away from the berg but it was far too late at the speed she was going to hope to steer the huge titanic over a sixth of a mile long out of reach of danger even if the iceberg had been visible half a mile away it is doubtful whether some portion of her tremendous length would not have been touched and it is in the highest degree unlikely that the lookout could have seen the berg half a mile away in the conditions that existed that night even with glasses the very smoothness of the water made the presence of ice a more difficult matter to detect in ordinary conditions the dash of the waves against the foot of an iceberg surrounds it with a circle of white foam visible for some distance long before the iceberg itself but here was an oily sea sweeping smoothly round the deadly monster and causing no indication of its presence there is little doubt moreover that the crow's nest is not a good place from which to detect icebergs it is proverbial that they adopt to a large extent the color of their surroundings and seen from above at a high angle with the black foam-free sea behind the iceberg must have been almost invisible until the titanic was close upon it i was much struck by a remark of sir ernest shackleton on his method of detecting icebergs to place a lookout man as low down near the water line as he could get him remembering how we had watched the titanic with all her lights out standing upright like an enormous black finger as one observer stated and had only seen her thus because she loomed black against the sky behind her i saw at once how much better the sky was than the black sea to show up an iceberg's bulk and so in a few moments the titanic had run obliquely on the berg and with a shock that was astonishingly slight, so slight that many passengers never noticed it, the submerged portion of the berg had cut her open on the starboard side in the most vulnerable portion of her anatomy, the bilge. The most authentic accounts say that the wound began at about the location of the foremast and extended far back to the stern, the brunt of the blow being taken by the forward plates which were either punctured through both bottoms directly by the blow or through one skin only and as this was torn away it ripped out some of the inner plates the fact that she went down by the head shows that probably only the forward plates were doubly punctured the stern ones being cut open through the outer skin only after the collision murdoch had at once reversed the engines and brought the ship to a standstill but the iceberg had floated away astern. The shock, though little felt by the enormous mass of the ship, was sufficient to dislodge a large quantity of ice from the berg. The forecastle deck was found to be covered with pieces of ice. Feeling the shock, Captain Smith rushed out of his cabin to the bridge, and in reply to his anxious inquiry was told by Murdoch that ice had been struck and the emergency doors instantly closed. 
the officers roused by the collision went on deck some to the bridge others while hearing nothing of the extent of the damage saw no necessity for doing so captain smith at once sent the carpenter below to sound the ship and fourth officer boxhall to the steerage to report damage the latter found there a very dangerous condition of things and reported to captain smith who then sent him to the mail room and here again it was easy to see matters looked very serious mail bags were floating about and the water rising rapidly all this was reported to the captain who ordered the lifeboats to be got ready at once mr boxhall went to the chart room to work out the ship's position which he then handed to the marconi operators for transmission to any ship near enough to help in the work of rescue reports of the damage done were by this time coming to the captain from many quarters from the chief engineer from the designer mr andrews and in a dramatic way from the sudden appearance on deck of a swarm of stokers who had rushed up from below as the water poured into the boiler rooms and the coal bunkers they were immediately ordered down below to duty again realizing the urgent need of help he went personally to the marconi room and gave orders to the operators to get in touch with all the ships they could and to tell them to come quickly the assistant operator bride had been asleep and knew of the damage only when phillips in charge of the marconi room told him ice had been encountered they started to send out the well-known c q d message which interpreted means c q all stations attend and d distress the position of the vessel in latitude and longitude following later they sent out s o s an arbitrary message agreed upon as an international code signal soon after the vessel struck mr ismay had learned of the nature of the accident from the captain and chief engineer and after dressing and going on deck had spoken to some of the officers not yet thoroughly acquainted with the grave injury done to the vessel by this time all those in any way connected with the management and navigation must have known the importance of making use of all the ways of safety known to them and that without any delay that they thought at first that the titanic would sink as soon as she did is doubtful but probably as the reports came in they knew that her ultimate loss in a few hours was a likely contingency on the other hand there is evidence that some of the officers in charge of boats quite expected the embarkation was a precautionary measure and they would all return after daylight certainly the first information that ice had been struck conveyed to those in charge no sense of the gravity of the circumstances one officer even retired to his cabin and another advised a steward to go back to his berth as there was no danger and so the order was sent round all passengers on deck with life belts on and in obedience to this a crowd of hastily dressed or partially dressed people began to assemble on the decks belonging to their respective classes except the steerage passengers who were allowed access to other decks tying on life belts over their clothing in some part of the ship women were separated from the men and assembled together near the boats in others 
men and women mingled freely together, husbands helping their own wives and families, and then other women and children into the boats. The officers spread themselves about the decks, superintending the work of lowering and loading the boats, and in three cases were ordered by their superior officers to take charge of them. At this stage, great difficulty was experienced in getting women to leave the ship, especially where the order was so rigorously enforced, women and children only. Women in many cases refused to leave their husbands and were actually forcibly lifted up and dropped in the boats. They argued with the officers, demanding reasons, and in some cases, even when induced to get in, were disposed to think the whole thing a joke or a precaution, which it seemed to them rather foolish to take. In this, they were encouraged by the men left behind, who, in the same condition of ignorance, said goodbye to their friends as they went down, adding that they would see them again at breakfast time. To illustrate further how little danger was apprehended when it was discovered on the first-class deck that the forward lower deck was covered with small ice, snowballing matches were arranged for the following morning, and some passengers even went down to the deck and brought back small pieces of ice which were handed round. Below decks, too, was additional evidence that no one thought of immediate danger. Two ladies walking along one of the corridors came across a group of people gathered round a door which they were trying vainly to open, and on the other side of which a man was demanding in loud terms to be let out. Either his door was locked and the key not to be found, or the collision had jammed the lock and prevented the key from turning. The ladies thought he must be afflicted in some way to make such a noise, but one of the men was assuring him that in no circumstances should he be left, and that his, the bystander's, son would be along soon and would smash down his door if it was not opened in the meantime. He has a stronger arm than I have, he added. The son arrived presently and proceeded to make short work of the door. It was smashed in and the inmate released, to his great satisfaction, and with many expressions of gratitude to his rescuer. But one of the head stewards, who came up at this juncture, was so incensed that the damage done to the property of his company, and so little aware of the infinitely greater damage done to the ship, that he warned the man who had released the prisoner that he would be arrested on arrival in New York. It must be borne in mind that no general warning had been issued to passengers. Here and there were experienced travelers to whom collision with an iceberg was sufficient to cause them to make every preparation for leaving the ship, but the great majority were never enlightened as to the amount of damage done, or even as to what had happened. We knew in a vague way that we had collided with an iceberg, but there our knowledge ended and most of us drew no deductions from that fact alone. Another factor that prevented some from taking to the boats was the drop to the water below and the journey into the unknown sea. Certainly it looked like a tremendous way down in the darkness, and the sea and the night both seemed very cold and lonely. And here was the ship, so firm and well-lighted and warm, but perhaps what made so many people declare their decision to remain 
was their strong belief in the theory of the Titanic's unsinkable construction. Again and again it was repeated, this ship cannot sink, it is only a question of waiting until another ship comes up and takes us off. Husbands expected to follow their wives and join them either in New York or by transfer in mid-ocean from steamer to steamer. Many passengers relate that they were told by officers that the ship was a lifeboat and could not go down. One lady affirms that the captain told her the Titanic could not sink for two or three days. No doubt, this was immediately after the collision. It is not any wonder, then, that many elected to remain, deliberately choosing the deck of the Titanic to a place in a lifeboat. And yet, the boats had to go down, and so at first they went half full. This is the real explanation of why they were not as fully loaded as the later ones. It is important then to consider the question how far the captain was justified in withholding all the knowledge he had from every passenger. From one point of view, he should have said to them, this ship will sink in a few hours, there are the boats, and only women and children can go to them. But had he the authority to enforce such an order? There are such things as panics and rushes which get beyond the control of a handful of officers, even if armed, and where even the bravest of men get swept off their feet, mentally as well as physically. On the other hand, if he decided to withhold all definite knowledge of danger from all passengers, and at the same time persuade, and if it was not sufficient, compel, women and children to take to the boats, it might result in their all being saved. He could not foresee the tenacity of their faith in the boat. There is ample evidence that he left the bridge when the ship had come to rest and went among the passengers, urging them to get into the boat and rigorously excluding all but women and children. Some would not go. Officer Lowe testified that he shouted, Who's next for the boat? and could get no replies. The boats even were sent away half-loaded, although the fear of their buckling in the middle was responsible as well for this. But the captain, with the few boats at his disposal, could hardly do more than persuade and advise in the terrible circumstances in which he was placed. How appalling to think that with a few more boats, and the ship was provided with that particular kind of davit that would launch more boats, there would have been no decision of that kind to make. It could have been stated plainly, this ship will sink in a few hours, there is room in the boats for all passengers, beginning with women and children. Poor Captain Smith! I care not whether the responsibility for such speed in an iceberg region will rest on his shoulders or not. No man ever had to make such a choice as he had that night, and it seems difficult to see how he can be blamed for withholding from passengers such information as he had of the danger that was imminent. When one reads in the press that lifeboats arrived at the Carpathia half full, it seems at first sight a dreadful thing that this should have been allowed to happen. But it is so easy to make these criticisms afterwards, so easy to say that Captain Smith should have told everyone of the condition of the vessel. He was faced with many conditions that night, which such criticism overlooks. Let any fair-minded person consider some few of the problems presented to him. 
the ship was bound to sink in a few hours there was lifeboat accommodation for all women and children and some men there was no way of getting some women to go except by telling them the ship was doomed a course he deemed it best not to take and he knew the danger of boats buckling when loaded full his solution of these problems was apparently the following to send the boats down half full with such women as would go and to tell the boats to stand by to pick up more passengers passed down from the cargo ports there is good evidence that this was part of the plan i heard an officer give the order to four boats and a lady in number four boat on the port side tells me the sailors were so long looking for the port where the captain personally had told them to wait that they were in danger of being sucked under by the vessel how far any systematic attempt was made to stand by the ports i do not know i never saw one open or any boat standing near on the starboard side but then boats nine to fifteen went down full and on reaching the sea rowed away at once there is good evidence then that captain smith fully intended to load the boats full in this way the failure to carry out the intention is one of the things the whole world regrets but consider again the great size of the ship and the short time to make decisions and the omission is more easily understood the fact is that such a contingency as lowering away boats was not even considered beforehand and there is much cause for gratitude that as many as seven hundred and five people were rescued the whole question of a captain's duties seems to require revision it was totally impossible for any one man to attempt to control the ship that night and the weather conditions could not well have been more favorable for doing so one of the reforms that seems inevitable is that one man shall be responsible for the boats their manning loading and lowering leaving the captain free to be on the bridge to the last moment but to return for a time to the means taken to attract the notice of other ships the wireless operators were now in touch with several ships and calling to them to come quickly for the water was pouring in and the titanic beginning to go down by the head bride testified that the first reply received was from a german boat the frankfurt which was all right stand by but not giving her position from comparison of the strength of signals received from the frankfurt and from other boats the operators estimated the frankfurt was the nearest but subsequent events proved that this was not so she was in fact one hundred and forty miles away and arrived at ten fifty a m next morning when the carpathia had left with the rescued the next reply was from the carpathia fifty-eight miles away on the outbound route to the mediterranean and it was a prompt and welcome one coming hard followed by the position then followed the olympic and with her they talked for some time but she was five hundred and sixty miles away on the southern route too far to be of any immediate help at the speed of twenty-three knots she would expect to be about one p m next day and this was about the time that those in boat 13 had calculated we had always assumed in the boat that the stokers who gave this information had it from one of the officers before they left 
but in the absence of any knowledge of the much nearer ship, the Carpathia, it is more probable that they knew in a general way where the sister ship, the Olympic, should be, and had made a rough calculation. Other ships in touch by wireless were the Mount Temple, 50 miles, the Burma, 100 miles, the Parisian, 150 miles, the Virginian, 150 miles, and the Baltic, 300 miles. But closer than any of these, closer even than the Carpathia, were two ships, the Californian, less than 20 miles away, with the wireless operator off-duty and unable to catch the CQD signal, which was now making the air for many miles around quiver in its appeal for help, immediate, urgent help, for the hundreds of people who stood on the Titanic's deck. The second vessel was a small steamer, some few miles ahead on the port side, without any wireless apparatus, her name and destination still unknown. And yet, the evidence for her presence that night seems too strong to be disregarded. Mr. Boxhall states that he and Captain Smith saw her quite plainly some five miles away, and could distinguish the masthead lights and a red port light. They at once hailed her with rockets and Morse electric signals, to which Boxhall saw no reply. But Captain Smith and stewards affirmed they did. The second and third officers saw the signal sent and her lights, the latter from the lifeboat of which he was in charge. Seaman Hopkins testified that he was told by the captain to row for the light, and we in boat 13 certainly saw it in the same position and rowed towards it for some time. But notwithstanding all the efforts made to attract its attention, it drew slowly away, and the lights sank below the horizon. The pity of it! So near, and so many people waiting for the shelter its decks could have given so easily. It seems impossible to think that this ship ever replied to the signals. Those who said so must have been mistaken. The United States Senate Committee, in its report, does not hesitate to say that this unknown steamer and the Californian are identical, and that the failure on the part of the latter to come to help of the Titanic is culpable negligence. There is undoubted evidence that some of the crew on the Californian saw our rockets, but it seems impossible to believe that the captain and officers knew of our distress and deliberately ignored it. Judgment on the matter had better be suspended until further information is forthcoming. An engineer who has served in the transatlantic service tells me that it is a common practice for small boats to leave the fishing smacks to which they belong and row away for miles, sometimes even being lost and wandering about among icebergs, and even not being found again. In these circumstances, rockets are part of a fishing smack's equipment, and are sent up to indicate to the small boats how to return. Is it conceivable that the Californian thought our rockets were such signals and therefore paid no attention to them? Incidentally, this engineer did not hesitate to add that it is doubtful if a big liner would stop to help a small fishing boat sending off distress signals, or even would turn about to help one which she herself had cut down as it lay in her path without a light. 
he was strong in his affirmation that such things were commonly known to all officers in the transatlantic service with regard to the other vessels in wireless communication the mount temple was the only one near enough from the point of distance to have arrived in time to be of help but between her and the titanic lay the enormous ice blow and icebergs were near her in addition the seven ships which caught the message started at once to help but were all stopped on the way except the burma by the carpathia's wireless announcing the fate of the titanic and the people aboard her the message must have affected the captains of these ships very deeply they would understand far better than the traveling public what it meant to lose such a beautiful ship on her first voyage the only thing now left to be done was to get the lifeboats away as quickly as possible and to this task the other officers were in the meantime devoting all their endeavors mr lightoller sent away boat after boat in one he had put twenty-four women and children in another thirty in another thirty-five and then running short of seamen to man the boats he sent major puchin an expert yachtsman in the next to help with its navigation by the time these had been filled he had difficulty in finding women for the fifth and sixth boats for the reasons already stated all this time the passengers remained to use his own expression as quiet as if in church to man and supervise the loading of six boats must have taken him nearly up to the time of the titanic sinking taking an average of some twenty minutes to a boat still at work to the end he remained on the ship till she sank and went down with her his evidence before the united states committee was as follows did you leave the ship no sir did the ship leave you yes sir it was a piece of work well and cleanly done and his escape from the ship one of the most wonderful of all seems almost a reward for his devotion to duty captain smith officers wild and murdoch were similarly engaged in other parts of the ship urging women to get in the boats in some cases directing junior officers to go down in some of them officers pitman boxhall and lowe were sent in this way and others placing members of the crew in charge as the boats were lowered orders were shouted to them where to make for some were told to stand by and wait for further instructions others to row for the light of the disappearing steamer it is a pitiful thing to recall the effects of sending down the first boats half full in some cases men in the company of their wives had actually taken seats in the boats young men married only a few weeks and on their wedding trip and had done so only because no more women could then be found but the strict interpretation by the particular officer in charge there of the rule of women and children only compelled them to get out again some of these boats were lowered and reached the carpathia with many vacant seats the anguish of the young wives in such circumstances can only be imagined in other parts of the ship however a different interpretation was placed on the rule and men were allowed and even invited by officers to get in not only to form part of the crew but even as passengers this of course in the first boats and when no more women could be found the varied understanding of this rule was a frequent subject of discussion on the carpathia 
In fact, the rule itself was debated with much heart-searching. There were not wanting many who doubted the justice of its rigid enforcement, who could not think it well that a husband should be separated from his wife and family, leaving them penniless, or a young bridegroom from his wife of a few short weeks, while ladies with few relatives, with no one dependent upon them, and few responsibilities of any kind, were saved. It was mostly these ladies who pressed this view, and even men seemed to think there was a good deal to be said for it. Perhaps there is, theoretically, but it would be impossible, I think, in practice. To quote Mr. Lightoller again in his evidence before the United States Senate Committee, when asked if it was a rule of the sea that women and children be saved first, he replied, No, it is a rule of human nature. That is no doubt the real reason for its existence. But the selective process of circumstances brought about results that were very bitter to some. It was heart-rending for ladies who had lost all they held dearest in the world to hear that in one boat was a stoker picked up out of the sea so drunk that he stood up and brandished his arms about and had to be thrown down by ladies and sat upon to keep him quiet. If comparisons can be drawn, it did seem better that an educated, refined man should be saved than one who had flown to drink as his refuge in time of danger. These discussions turned sometimes to the old inquiry, what is the purpose of all this? Why the disaster? Why this man saved and that man lost? Who has arranged that my husband should live a few short happy years in the world and the happiest days in those years with me these last few weeks and then be taken from me? I heard no one attribute all this to a divine power who ordains and arranges the lives of men and as part of a definite scheme sends such calamity and misery in order to purify, to teach, to spiritualize. I do not say there were not people who thought and said they saw divine wisdom in it all, so inscrutable that we in our ignorance saw it not, but I did not hear it expressed, and this book is intended to be no more than a partial chronicle of the many different experiences and convictions. There were those, on the other hand, who did not fail to say emphatically that indifference to the rights and feelings of others, blindness to duty towards our fellow men and women, was in the last analysis the cause of most of the human misery in the world, and it should undoubtedly appeal more to our sense of justice to attribute these things to our own lack of consideration for others than to shift the responsibility onto a power whom we first postulate as being all-wise and all-loving. All the boats were lowered and sent away by 2 a.m., and by this time the ship was very low in the water. The forecastle deck completely submerged, and the sea creeping steadily up to the bridge and probably only a few yards away, no one on the ship can have had any doubt now as to her ultimate fate. And yet, the 1,500 passengers and crew on board made no demonstration, and not a sound came from them as they stood quietly on the decks or went about their duties below. It seems incredible, and yet, if it was a continuation of the same feeling that existed on deck before the boats left, and I have no doubt that it was, the explanation is straightforward and reasonable in its simplicity. 
an attempt is made in the last chapter to show why the attitude of the crowd was so quietly courageous there are accounts which picture excited crowds running about the deck in terror fighting and struggling but two of the most accurate observers colonel gracie and mr lightoller affirm that this was not so that absolute order and quietness prevailed the band still played to cheer the hearts of all near the engineers and their crew i have never heard anyone speak of a single engineer being seen on deck still worked at the electric light engines far away below keeping them going until no human being could do so a second longer right until the ship tilted on end and the engines broke loose and fell down the light failed then only because the engines were no longer there to produce light not because the men who worked them were not standing by them to do their duty to be down in the bowels of the ship far away from the deck where at any rate there was a chance of a dive and a swim and a possible rescue to know that when the ship went as they knew it must soon there could be no possible hope of climbing up in time to reach the sea to know all these things and yet keep the engines going that the decks might be lighted to the last moment required sublime courage but this courage is required of every engineer and it is not called by that name it is called duty to stand by his engines to the last possible moment is his duty there could be no better example of the supremest courage being but duty well done than to remember the engineers of the titanic still at work as she heeled over and flung them with their engines down the length of the ship the simple statement that the lights kept on to the last is really their epitaph but lowell's words would seem to apply to them with peculiar force Quote, the longer on this earth we live and weigh the various qualities of men the more we feel the high stern-featured beauty of plain devotedness to duty steadfast and still nor paid with mortal praise but finding amplest recompense for life's ungarlanded expense and work done squarely and unwasted days End quote. for some time before she sank the titanic had a considerable list to port so much so that one boat at any rate swung so far away from the side that difficulty was experienced in getting passengers in this list was increased towards the end and colonel gracie relates that mr lightoller who has a deep powerful voice ordered all passengers to the starboard side this was close before the end they crossed over and as they did so a crowd of steerage passengers rushed up and filled the decks so full that there was barely room to move soon afterwards the great vessel swung slowly stern in the air the lights went out and while some were flung into the water and others dived off the great majority still clung to the rails to the sides and roofs of the deck structures lying prone on the deck and in this position they were when a few minutes later the enormous vessel dived obliquely downwards as she went no doubt many still clung to the rails but most would do their best to get away from her and jump as she slid forwards and downwards 
Whatever they did, there can be little question that most of them would be taken down by suction, to come up again a few moments later and to feel the air with those heart-rending cries which fell on the ears of those in the lifeboats with such amazement. Another survivor, on the other hand, relates that he had dived from the stern before she heeled over and swam round under her enormous triple screws, lifted by now high out of the water as she stood on end. Fascinated by the extraordinary sight, he watched them up above his head, but presently realizing the necessity of getting away as quickly as possible, he started to swim from the ship. But as he did, she dived forward, the screws passing near his head. His experience is that not only was no suction present, but even a wave was created which washed him away from the place where she had gone down. Of all those 1,500 people flung into the sea as the Titanic went down, innocent victims of thoughtlessness and apathy of those responsible for their safety, only a very few found their way to the Carpathia. It will serve no good purpose to dwell any longer on the scene of helpless men and women struggling in the water. The heart of everyone who has read of their helplessness has gone out to them in deepest love and sympathy, and the knowledge that their struggle in the water was, in most cases, short and not physically painful because of the low temperature. The evidence seems to show that few lost their lives by drowning is some consolation. If everyone sees to it that his sympathy with them is so practical as to force him to follow up the question of reforms personally, not leaving it to the experts alone, then he will have at any rate done something to atone for the loss of so many valuable lives. We had now better follow the adventures of those who were rescued from the final event in the disaster. Two accounts, those of Colonel Gracie and Mr. Lytoller, agree very closely. The former went down clinging to a rail. The latter dived before the ship went right under, but was sucked down and held against one of the blowers. They were both carried down for what seemed like a long distance, but Mr. Lytoller was finally blown up again by a terrific gust that came up the blower and forced him clear. Colonel Gracie came to the surface after holding his breath for what seemed like an eternity, and they both swam about holding on to any wreckage they could find. Finally, they saw an upturned collapsible boat and climbed on it in company with 20 other men, among them Bride, the Marconi operator. After remaining thus for some hours, with the sea washing over them to the waist, they stood up as day broke, in two rows, back to back, balancing themselves as well as they could, and afraid to turn, lest the boat should roll over. Finally, a lifeboat saw them and took them off, an operation attended with the greatest difficulty, and they reached the Carpathia in the early dawn. Not many people have gone through such an experience as those men did, lying all night on an overturned, ill-balanced boat and praying together, as they did all the time, for the day and a ship to take them off. Some account must now be attempted of the journey of the fleet of boats to the Carpathia, but it must necessarily be very brief. Experiences differed considerably. Some had no encounters at all with icebergs, no lack of men to row. 
discovered lights and food and water, were picked up after only a few hours' exposure, and suffered very little discomfort. Others seemed to see icebergs round them all night long, and to be always rowing round them. Others had so few men aboard, in some cases only two or three, that ladies had to row, and in one case to steer, found no lights, food, or water, and were adrift many hours, in some cases nearly eight. The first boat to be picked up by the Carpathia was one in charge of Mr. Boxhall. There was only one other man rowing and ladies working at the oars. A green light burning in this boat all night was the greatest comfort to the rest of us who had nothing to steer by. Although it meant little in the way of safety itself, it was a point to which we could look. The green light was the first intimation Captain Rostron had of our position, and he steered for it and picked up its passengers first. Mr. Pittman was sent by First Officer Murdoch in charge of boat five, with forty passengers and five of the crew. It would have held more, but no women could be found at the time it was lowered. Mr. Pittman says that after leaving the ship, he felt confident she would float and they would all return. A passenger in this boat relates that men could not be induced to embark when she went down, and made appointments for the next morning with them. Tied to boat five was boat seven, one of those that contained few people. A few were transferred from number five, but it would have held many more. Fifth Officer Lowe was in charge of boat 14, with 55 women and children, and some of the crew. So full was the boat that as she went down, Mr. Lowe had to fire his revolver along the ship's side to prevent any more climbing in and causing her to buckle. This boat, like boat 13, was difficult to release from the lowering tackle and had to be cut away after reaching the sea. Mr. Lowe took in charge four other boats, tied them together with lines, found some of them not full, and transferred all his passengers to these, distributing them in the darkness as well as he could. Then returning to the place where the Titanic had sunk, he picked up some of those swimming in the water and went back to the four boats. On the way to the Carpathia, he encountered one of the collapsible boats and took aboard all those in her as she seemed to be sinking. Boat 12 was one of the four tied together and the seaman in charge testified that he tried to row to the drowning, but with forty women and children and only one other man to row, it was not possible to pull such a heavy boat to the scene of the wreck. Boat two was a small ship's boat and had four or five passengers and seven of the crew. Boat four was one of the last to leave on the port side and by this time there was such a list that deck chairs had to bridge the gap between the boat and the deck. When lowered, it remained for some time still attached to the ropes, and as the Titanic was rapidly sinking, it seemed she would be pulled under. The boat was full of women who besought the sailors to leave the ship, but in obedience to orders from the captain to stand by the cargo port, they remained near, so near, in fact, that they heard china falling and smashing as the ship went down by the head and were nearly hit by wreckage thrown overboard by some of the officers and crew and intended to serve as rafts. They got clear finally and were only a short distance away when the ship sank. 
so that they were able to pull some men aboard as they came to the surface. This boat had an unpleasant experience in the night with icebergs. Many were seen and avoided with difficulty. Quartermaster Hickens was in charge of boat six, and in the absence of sailors, Major Puchin was sent to help man her. They were told to make for the light of the steamer seen on the port side, and followed it until it disappeared. There were forty women and children here. Boat eight had only one seaman, and as Captain Smith had enforced the rule of women and children only, ladies had to row. Later in the night, when little progress had been made, the seamen took an oar and put a lady in charge of the tiller. This boat, again, was in the midst of icebergs. Of the four collapsible boats, although collapsible is not really the correct term, for only a small portion collapses, the canvas edge, surf boats is really their name, one was launched at the last moment by being pushed over as the sea rose to the edge of the deck and was never righted. This is the one twenty men climbed on. Another was caught up by Mr. Lowe and the passengers transferred, with the exception of three men who had perished from the effects of immersion. The boat was allowed to drift away and was found more than a month later by the Celtic in just the same condition. It is interesting to note how long this boat had remained afloat, after she was supposed to be no longer seaworthy. A curious coincidence arose from the fact that one of my brothers happened to be traveling on the Celtic, and looking over the side, saw adrift on the sea a boat belonging to the Titanic, in which I had been wrecked. The two other collapsible boats came to the Carpathia, carrying full loads of passengers. In one, the forward-starboard boat, and one of the last to leave, was Mr. Ismay. Here, four Chinamen were concealed under the feet of the passengers. How they got there, no one knew, or indeed how they happened to be on the Titanic, for by immigration laws of the United States, they are not allowed to enter her ports. It must be said, in conclusion, that there is the greatest cause for gratitude that all the boats launched carried their passengers safely to the rescue ship, it would not be right to accept this fact without calling attention to it. It would be easy to enumerate many things which might have been present as elements of danger. End of chapter 6